Hello everybody, welcome to the second part of the BPSA podcast, Smart Contracts, What are the Alternatives to Ethereum? This time, we have the very special guests, Armenio from Ergo Project. Welcome, Armenio. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. And we also have hash rates from Ether Protocol. How are you doing? Doing great. We're doing great. Looking forward to this. In the background, we have Cax helping us um, with the technical aspect of the podcast. So thank you very much for being here with us. Um, we also might have an extra special guests dropping in uh, later on. Um, but let's uh, start a little bit um, with what we covered in the first sort of series. We looked at, you know, basic definitions of smart contracts. We asked a few questions about you know their functionality and you know how useful they are in the blockchain space so just to revisit that and to simplify things let's let's start with that question from your point of view what are smart contracts well i would start with looking at what a regular contract is it's basically a exchange that is predetermined by a series of events. Whether you buy a car or sell a house, there are certain stages in that process that you go through that you know, a real world event happens and that triggers a new stage in the exchange. I believe in the classic example for a smart contract is somewhat like a vending machine where you put in money, uh, you give some order and have some expectation that there's going to be a series of events that leads to an output, you know, in that case being um, the item that you purchased. Hash rates, what's your definition? Yeah, I, I like that. That's a good entry, you know, talking about it's, it's, you know, it's what is a regular contract. And, you know, contract is basically an agreement between two parties, um, a, a rule book, right? And typically, what a smart contract is, is think of it as kind of an art, and I hate to use the AI artificial intelligence buzzword, but it, in a way, it's like that, right? It is, it is a pro programmatically written contract that executes based on certain things being done. So I always like to use the example when I explain it to people I work with in my day job. They say, what's a smart contract? I said, well, let's think about this. I said, let's say we're going to bet on a ball game, right? We're going to, let's use some European football. You got, I don't know, maybe it's the Champions League or whatever, and you got Munich against, you know, uh, I don't know, uh, Arsenal or something like that. You want to bet on the game. You know, in the old days, you could say, all right, I owe you, let's both put in 100 euro or 100 pounds or $100 or whatever on that. And, and then we'd sit there and we'd, we'd wait for the game to come out. And then at the, sitting around the table, we'd all get, we'd get the payout. But with a smart contract, you could actually write that bet, right, using, uh, using Solidity or language like Ethereum, for example, the Solidity which Ethereum is based on. And we could each deposit our $100 or 100 euros or pounds or whatever into that. Or in this case, you could use Ethereum or whatever cryptocurrency you want. You send it into the contract and you tell the contract, say, hey, listen, after this ball game or this football game is done, Check the sports score, and I'll use the American uh, example, ESPN. You know, check the, the, the score on ESPN's website after the game. And whoever, whoever bet on the winner, send the money to them. So rather than hoping that your buddy pays you or whatever, or having that money uh, disappear or somebody doesn't make good on the bet, 
Everybody puts their money into the smart contract. It's sealed. It executes. It checks the sports score. And at the end of the game, there's a payout. So that's a very simple example of a smart contract. But considering that with regards to programming software, it's almost unlimited. I, I always say, think of it as smart money. And I always say, like, Bitcoin was, was version 1.0, right? It, it's dumb money. I can send you Bitcoin. You could send me Bitcoin. And that's about it. And then, of course, Ethereum came along and it started with the smart contract and smart money where you can make it conditional. I'm going to send you X based on Y. And that can be defined basically unlimited. And so that's what a smart contract does. And then rather than having to have an escrow or a third party, which typically is a human being or a legal organization or somebody else take care of uh, making sure those parameters are met, it's programmatically met, it self-executes, and it's all automated. Um, and I think, at least my point of view at this point in time, is the smart contracts that we have today are very, very basic and do very, very basic things. But I think over time that they're going to evolve to do very, very complicated things um, and will be very sophisticated, and things will happen quicker, faster, and cheaper because of that. It really is about... I think, efficient business. Kind of a long-winded answer, but uh, that's kind of my broad, broad, uh, broad perspective. Okay, thank you very much. That's very, very interesting. So you've already touched upon you know, the area of the benefits of using smart contracts. So one of the benefits, if I understood correctly, is essentially that the smart contract you know, has a function that allows the transaction to happen without the intervention of individuals. Is that correct? Absolutely correct. It's self-executing. So that's, that's a huge benefit, right? What other benefits do smart contracts offer? Well, I would say the largest benefit is simply the removal of intermediaries. Now, that's uh, good in theory and in practical application. You do have certain elements of trust that you need to rely on that may or may not function as intended. Uh, that's where you get into oracles. Um, if you look at a smart contract as a series of events, right, you need verification that a specific event has occurred. And that does um, kind of open smart contracts as we've seen throughout the space to uh, manipulation, fixing, um, hacking. So there, there are some assumptions that users need to be aware of, um, specifically when it comes to Oracle data and how events are verified. Now, as we kind of get into um, how we get accurate subjective truth, which is Oracle data, um, we will move into a space where more and more can be done on chain in a way that's trusted. And I think that ultimately is the biggest hurdle that the space as a whole needs to overcome to have uh, DeFi become more secure and adopted, user-friendly. Yeah, it's very, very well put. I like the fact that you talk about the oracles, right? And, and that's a good component of this. Um, DeFi at this point, of course, is the wild, wild west. And as much as I like to play with it, you know, you can, you know, we've seen huge uh, holes in it where millions and millions of dollars have been stolen with flash loans and everything else. And I, I think as, as it matures, 
um, and we get more into it, um, that'll get better. But I think if we want to kind of keep the conversation simple, you know, rather than getting into De DeFi, if somebody was going to listen to this podcast and says, hey, I've heard about smart contracts and how can I use it? I try to put it into, you know, real world examples. And like my case, for example, the Oracle for the bet was the ESPN website, right? We say, well, who are we, where are we going to go to get that sports score? Um, well, let's use ESPN's website, right? They've got an API that has all the scores that you can get the score from. And everybody kind of trusts that ESPN is going to have a, uh, the correct score on their website after the game. But I, I like the fact that you bring in oracles. And if we think about more sophisticated um, financial instruments, where I certainly think where smart contracts are going to play is going to be in finance. If we look at traditional fi finance, I, I think most people that are involved with business have heard of the LIBOR rate, right? The, the LIBOR rate is the interbanking rate that everybody references and they base their interest rates off of. And it's published if I stand, if I remember correctly, I think it's published out of the UK or that, you know, and everybody based the LIBOR rate. And then from there, they say, hey, our interest rate is LIBOR plus two or LIBOR plus eight or whatever that number may be. Right. Um, and if you look in American credit cards, for example, you'll often see them even reference. And I'm trying to make a, a connection here with the Oracle because I really like that, uh, um, you know, about talking about the Oracle's. In the Wall Street Journal saying, hey, our, our interest rate on your credit card is going to be based on the last Friday of the uh, the last Friday of the month in the Wall Street Journal, the average interest rate on X. And that's actually the Oracle, right? So if we're trying to get people to understand what an Oracle is, it's these referenceable points. Um, and in this case, you know, you define the Oracle in your smart contract. You say, hey, look, we agree that we're going to use the ESPN website for the ballgame score. Or we're going to be able to use the LIBOR rate for our smart contract. And so those oracles can be defined. Um, so that would be what an oracle is, I think, to somebody on the street. Do you I, remember I Do you remember 2008? Do you, do you remember the scandal with the LIBOR rate? Yep. So basically what happened in the UK in 2008 is it was discovered that the LIBOR rate that was given by, by banks was basically a number that was thought of by the traders and essentially the LIBOR rate was changed with the promise of a beer or a Mars bar. <laughs> so essentially one trader would call the other, would promise them a Mars bar and the other trader would change the LIBOR rate they submitted. And that LIBOR rate then affected the entire banking system. Yeah, billions of dollars, right? So um, there we have a Mars bar, larva, Oracle. <laughs> so, but yeah, but, right? <laughs> so uh, I like that though. I, I, you know, trying to make our podcast light and get it so people can understand that. I is always trying to reference back to right, like, you know, we all consider ourselves in the industry, I want to say experts, but we're kind of into this whole DeFi thing and, and trying to, I think, relate back to, to examples that are people new to the space can understand. And the same thing goes, in, in, and I think Arminio said about, about bad oracles, right? That is an issue. But just think, it doesn't just affect crypto, right? It affects Mars bars and traders. And you think about what happened with gold, right? The gold system, all based out of the UK as well, completely fixed, right? But these are oracles that the traditional finance system has used. And hopefully with our technology, we will have m more um, transparency to the oracles you can study the oracles, you can review the oracles, you can see the math, right? And you can say, I, I, I like what they say. 
And I think that's interesting about a smart contract and the fact that if, if it's done right, you know, the smart contract is published. It's referenceable. You can read it. Now, maybe the average guy in the street can't read it, but the point is, is it's on GitHub or like, what is it, Oplin Zeppelin, right? Oplin Zeppelin is a gigantic database of smart contract definitions that anybody can pull and use from that have been audited, have been cleaned up, have been looked at. And you can piece these things together to try to put together your rental property or or your ball game score or your bet or your voting system. So one of the things that I've seen that's been very interesting over the last few years, having been involved in the space, is is basically libraries of of, of validated open of open source contract language that have been proofed, have been written, have been validated, are clean, they're not full of bugs, and you can piece these things together, and you don't have to write it from scratch, right? So the thing that makes a smart contract, I think what's so wonderful about blockchain, right, is it's transparent. Every bit of code, every bit of language, everything that you do with a smart contract is completely visible and can be audited. Um, now, what happens, of course, in, is with some of these hacks with DeFi, people are grabbing pieces of these smart contracts that are very sophisticated, that have thousands and thousands of lines of code and they don't audit them or they don't review them and they put it and they just grab it off the shelf and they jam it into their own smart contract and what we found is that those pieces that they've used have had holes in them or have had bugs in them or have had vulnerabilities in them and they carry that vulnerability into their environment so just because it's out there um, and people use it doesn't necessarily mean it's clean right so there is you still have your responsibility doing your homework not to try to talk down the technology um, but, you know, people want to do it easily and quickly, and they just grab these pre-published smart contract codes, they throw it together, and somewhere there's a bug. So there is some risk, particularly for those that are really not um, well-versed in the space. I certainly wouldn't be able to audit a smart contract, right? I couldn't do that. I know how they work. I could steal the code. I could cut and paste them together. But, you know, that is the downside. But the good news is, is that as more and more of this stuff is getting mature, and and these are becoming tool sets that are free for everybody to use. Okay. Yeah, I would, I would uh, add to that that in existing contracts, we do have oracles. It's just a human that's verifying whatever aspect of the transaction has occurred. If I buy a car, they might pull information from my bank account. Um, they might look at my credit history. But for the most part, there are humans involved in that aspect of business. And then you have to say, okay, well, how do you incentivize honesty? Because if there's a dishonest actor or they're looking at the wrong bank account, uh, you know, business relies on honesty. And the only way to create that uh, in kind of the real world application is to have a trusted third party. And so all of those trusted third parties do act as a means of verification in some way. And the goal of smart contracts is to... Uh, replace that with software, computer programming, but then it becomes a matter of how do you have data complexity that creates uh, the assumption of truth, and how do you prevent uh, different actors from having measures of control and manipulating the system? And I don't think that in terms of oracles, that's something the industry has fully figured out. That's why uh, we see so many exploits. Now, there are a lot of different frameworks in development to create more data complexity. Um, but to some degree, you know, you could look at it in the real world as like, um, 
let's say horse race fixing, right? If there's only one data source, um, that creates a weakness. You know, if there is two data sources, okay, it's a little bit more hardened. Ideally, um, we're going to move as a space uh, towards a reality where verification has data complexity that's hard to control and manipulate. And, you know, blockchain in and of itself is built on objective truth. You can look at the history, you can look at the transactions, you can trust it. Um, Oracle's is more of a a subjective truth at this point where you, you do have to trust the actors, the oracles, and sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. I would say if you look at a lot of DeFi hacks, one of the biggest uh, points of failure is when there's not data complexity. There might be a smart contract that's pulling from a single source, whether it's a DEX or a centralized exchange, and that creates kind of a concentration or bottleneck that if somebody wants to try to attack that smart contract, they're able to. Wow, that's very, very interesting. So, I mean, so to sort of focus a little bit the conversation on some some areas you already touched upon, who is, you know, who guarantees right now the accuracy of a smart contract? Nobody does. You have to do your own homework, right? I mean, there is no guarantee for a smart contract um, as far as I know. I mean, it, they're out there. Um, the only thing that I think, and again, this is just my opinion, and, and I'm a business development guy, right? I'm not a, I'm not a smart contract coder, so uh, take that with a grain of salt when I speak, is that you can go to these libraries and hopefully you can go to a trusted library. You know, again, like Open Zeppelin is the one that I know of that you can get a lot of code that's out there that's been published, that's been around, and you can repurpose that code. Um, other than that, you have to go and you can get your smart contracts audited, which can be extremely expensive. Um, but I mean, that's about it. You have to do, you have to do some homework. There is no guarantee. Um, Armenio, maybe you've got some other thoughts on that. Sure. I think that one benefit of having open code is that you always have a certain community audit and the more active the community, uh, there's a greater likelihood that somebody from the community is going to get eyes, review, test, and get kind of a communal feedback on a particular smart contract. Now, it's hard to say. The space is uh, moving in different directions. You have some communities that are very heavily focused on open source, uh, community audits, and then perhaps third-party audits. Uh, you have other projects that are kind of going the way of um, Uniswap 3, where they're licensing their products, uh, keeping it more under lock and key. Now, I think you know with something like Uniswap, we can have the assumption that they've you know, put in the time and effort to make sure that their code is uh, pretty solid. But ideally, it does um, kind of, you have to trust the people that come before you to some degree. And you also have to know your assumptions when you're participating with a smart contract. Because there are a lot of security assumptions that the average user may not be aware of that could impact the security of what they're interacting with. Um, well, yeah, and, and, and bad actors, for sure, absolutely know that. I mean, how many people, like, let's look at PancakeSwap, right? PancakeSwap, I'm sorry if you guys are out there and you love it. It is the home of garbage, right? 
people are cutting code, at least they were a couple months ago, slapping together all these different ICOs and projects and reusing the code. People were buying these pancake swap uh, tokens, hoping for the pump and dump. And some of them, they literally just, the, the, the code just wired your money to their, to their wallet. I mean, there was nothing behind it, right? And people, and, th and 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 they lose, you know, half a million dollars or a million dollars in twenty minutes, and then the, and then the wallet would disappear. So you know, the average user that's out there, they see one of these pump and dump channels on Telegram or Discord, and this is the hot new thing, and people go into it and they lose their money, and it is completely unregulated. So you have to be really careful with that. Um, and 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 they and and the scammers are hoping that you're not going to look at it. So if you're using this for business, right, like a real business environment, you're going to have to treat it like that. You wouldn't just sign a contract to buy a million dollar property without reading it, right? You would go to a lawyer, you'd go to an escrow company, you'd spend all these time in this, this effort around that. And then based on that, you'd get some money in your bank and you'd go and you'd wire it. Um, but it seems in this DeFi space where, you know, where there's a, you know, where really smart contracts have a lot of, lot of exposure. People are so excited about the pump and dump, they don't do any homework at all because they think it's all about just getting that greed and trying to get that quick buck. So it, 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 just because this technology is there, it doesn't mean that you still don't have to do your homework, right? And those that don't will pay the ultimate price. Oh, absolutely. I wanted to, to touch on something that Armenio mentioned. So he, he mentioned uh, community um, uh, audits. And obviously, when we talk about community audits, we're talking about people who have enough technical expertise to carry these audits out, right? So we're talking about developers in those communities who can do these audits or who can, well, who can notice use, irregularities in smart contracts. I'll use an example for you. Uh, the first thing you have to recognize is that uh, we're talking about software. And I think everybody that has interacted with software, whether it's on their computer or their phone, has had an update occur that needs to be patched in the future, right? That's kind of, uh, it doesn't matter if you're Apple or Google or Facebook, um, that kind of just occurs in the life cycle of software, where something needs to be patched or optimized. Now, on Ergo, we have a beta version of um, the Ergodex, which is in development, right? And with the beta version, what we decided to do is rather than create tokens that have monetary value, uh, we created a faucet and test tokens. And so we opened it up to the community and said, hey, break the decks. And, uh, you know, if you break the decks, let us know, you know, what happened, what you were doing. And that way we can go through it and, you know, patch whatever different issues come up. Uh, then after that process of kind of hardening the decks through having users which are very good at falling through cracks, <laughs> finding cracks and issues and bugs and, you know, trying to optimize the software, then we'll get an audit, right? But that, um, to some degree, requires user experience to find that sometimes. So I do think that rolling out software in the alpha version in the back end where you have developers trying to break something and making it public where users can not only um, interact and learn how to use the application, they can also assist the team to harden it, right? And then uh, eventually go to the mainnet version that, you know, has gone through kind of a testing process. 
that's just how software development works. And that's not always something that occurs overnight. And one thing that, uh, you know, Hashrates was pointing out with uh, PancakeSwap, right? There's a lot of excitement and hype in the industry. And I think that that leads projects to rush to market. And in my opinion, that's dangerous. No, that, that does sound absolutely dangerous. So, okay, based on all of that that we discussed, I mean, beyond the, you know, the community sort of auditing that you described, which sounds like an extremely powerful process to be able, you know, to find problems with the, you know, with the software and to be able to pinpoint um, things, things that could potentially, you know, go wrong and, and use the community power to fix a lot of those issues before, you know, the, the smart contract even goes to a third party audit. But, you know, when it comes to those third party audits, I want to discuss, you know, who are those companies that, uh, which are those companies that, that do these audits and, you know, can we trust them? And at the same time, before you answer that question, I want to welcome uh, Wookie um, from Pirate Chain, who has just joined us um, on this podcast. Um, but, you know, apart from his experience with Pirate Chain, I know that Wookie is, you know, very well versed in the, in the world of DeFi. Um, so I would very much welcome his thoughts today. So going back to my question... You know, what are these, which are these third parties that do smart contract auditing and can they be trusted? Well, let's go back to kind of a real world experience, right? You do have uh, companies that uh, provide, you know, their experience, expertise, review of code. Uh, just like if you're buying a house, you might want to have someone come and inspect the house, right? Now, you do have a certain expectation that they're going to know what they're doing and you know find any major issues and the majority of the time that is the case now if we're talking about you know fully eliminating risk that's very hard to guarantee uh usually if you have a third party auditor uh, they will dive into the code and you know they may have some sort of uh, let's say warranty where after they've reviewed their code, if anything does come up, uh, they will you know, help you to assist what they fixed, which is somewhat similar to what would happen in the housing situation. Okay. Uh, anybody else wants to add anything on, on the companies that do the auditing? Um, the only thing that I would add, and I'd have to, get this to us after the podcast, is Ernest & Young, um, we've all heard of them, they actually are a big Ethereum um, supporter, and they jumped on board uh, Ethereum, uh, probably, I think I participated in their blockchain week in 2019 when they first announced it, uh, I was involved with that a little bit. They have published, and I've got to find the link, they actually had a, an Ethereum Solidity auditing tool for free on their website. It was like, you know, solidityaudit.ernestandyoung.com or something like that. And you could drop your contract there and it would debug your contract. Now, I don't know if it had the possibility to debug, you know, a DeFi contract that was going to have tokenization and all that other stuff. But they actually had some, there's, so I guess my point is there's actually tool sets now 
that can help do some of this debugging. And Ernst and Young, of course, they're in the debugging business, right? At least they're supposed to be. Um, and so uh, that I thought that was kind of interesting. I know there's a lot of uh, actual consulting companies out there, and often you will see. Um, for example, if you go to, uh, let's say you go to CoinMarketCap or CoinGecko, uh, you click on a project and often they'll have audit reports associated on that project and you can click on the audit report and there's typically, and I, I can't name them off the top of my head, three or four kind of like industry auditing companies that are the good housekeeping seal that in other words, if you've had your smart contract audited by smartcontractauditorgeeks.com or whatever it is, then you know it's done well. But you can actually, it's easy to find that information in CoinMarketCap and CoinGecko often will have a lot of that uh, information uh, based on, um, you can find right there on the listing sites. Do, do we think that this is what's going on right now? So are all the projects going to these, you know, high class, high quality companies and getting the contracts audited? Or are people just going left, right and center to whoever, um, just a single person? I mean, Armenio before talked, you know, about how Ergo goes about doing this whole process of testing and bug finding. Is every other project doing the same? No, not even close. Um, you know, another thing I would add, just based on, you know, uh, looking at how different projects are put together, you do have different um, code that's chosen, different code bases. You have some uh, projects that are trying to uh, heavily focus on formal verification methods to try to ensure the accuracy of what they're creating. You have some projects that are, um, you know, much more object oriented and, you know, sometimes have a lot of holes, but security and auditing takes time. And one downside to the excitement of the crypto space is people are often impatient. Um, building a solid product takes time. And I would say there are a lot of projects that rush to market just because of the excitement and liquidity that's available. And my opinion is that uh, users need to be aware of that. I would agree with him 100%. I would say that 99% of the people don't audit shit. Sorry for my language, but they don't. They just, they, they don't even, you know, Ergo's got a very nice community-based approach. And I'm not going to say that's a problem. That's a very pure and a very, I, I like that. But that takes time because you can only move as fast as the community wants. And like he just said, everybody wants it today. And so by going to a third-party auditor, it provides speed. And speed costs money. But speed also makes errors. And, you know, I like to watch a TV show here called Dangerous Catch. And on this TV show, one of the captains said, safety's fine when you've got the time, right? And I think it actually applies even to this space here. You know, if you've got the time to take to audit your contracts, you're going to be good. But if you don't and you rush to market, you're going to make errors. And I think a lot of the people that say they have audited contracts, the vast majority, like probably 98%, just one man's opinion, nothing's been audited. I think they're just lying completely. So, if so, the, go ahead. Go ahead, Wiki. I've seen, I, I've seen many projects. You know, they they do. They say they audit, and it's just basically lip service, right? Somebody down in his basement, or some kid. You know, you have no idea how old these people are, right? Somewhere could be doing, say, slap on a a website with a company, fancy company name, and say, oh yeah, I'll audit your code, 
And then at the end of the day, if something goes wrong, you know, oh well, the, you know, take off the website, and then, then that's it. And and it's the the people that invested in those tokens that um, you know, that that lose out on it. I mean, I've um, there are a few names that are you know I think more commonly used, uh, uh, bigger groups like Certic, um, but there are certainly a lot of fly-by-night ones. And I just feel like a lot of crypto nowadays, well, crypto is as crypto is, a lot of this is just driven by hype. You know, people just want to tick, check off a box. This is audited. Yeah, no, that, that's, I think that's the general feeling we all have. So that leads very nicely to the next question, um, which is, you know, because of all this situation and, you know, despite all this situation, are right now smart contracts susceptible to regulatory oversight? And there is there is a you know a double sided question here because you know are they now, and how likely are they to be in the future if this situation continues, where a lot of people are going to market before they do their proper due diligence. And a lot of money is at risk, and potentially, you know, we will see more situations in the future where there is big hacks, a lot of money lost. Will that be an excuse for governments to come in and regulate um, smart contracts? I I don't think. Um, it, it, at this point in time, from a jurisdictional perspective, I think at least in the United States, you probably could argue that you could bring, you know, we have pretty sophisticated, one thing about the United States, even though everybody, you know, sometimes people get down on it. Um, the reality is that we have a tremendous, um, you know, organizational infrastructure here. And the rule of law, despite what everybody thinks about it, works pretty well, even though it's slow. And our courts are actually very sophisticated. So if you had a smart contract and you brought it in to a court and, and both people had signed that or agreed to use it, I think it could be easily entered as evidence. And you could find a court that would be sophisticated enough to understand that. Um, and so while there's no laws that I know of that particularly say they're illegal or not legal, I think at least in the United States, our court system would accept a smart contract because we accept software already. And, and, and software is a huge industry for the United States, probably one of the largest. And so very sophisticated um, software issues happen here in the U.S. And therefore, that our contract would be honored. Um, so I, I, I don't know if we necessarily have to have some type of special law to do it. I think um, that there'll be more information on this later. Um, but at this point in time, you probably, if you got in a, if you got in a food fight here in the U.S., you probably could submit it as evidence, and you'd, you'd have something to go on. Uh, probably here better than somewhere else, I would imagine. Yeah, that's really a gray area. Um, you know, if, if we look at like a formal contract that everyone is used to, one of the things that's always connected with uh, binding contract is identification. And so you, um, you know, maybe we move into a standard where DIDs uh, become more adopted. And so you do have kind of a decentralized identity that uh, you can build reputation with and, 
you know, maybe there's some slashing mechanism that's programmed into the smart contract itself. Uh, you might have this space, have companies start to adopt a stronger KYC requirement, um, in which case they're going to have to play more, um, let's say, in the playground of existing laws and uh, contracts. I do know that the Uniform Commercial Code group in the United States is at least exploring that. But um, yeah, I think we're going to see a split. You know, I think we will probably see some blockchains that are kind of distributed digital currencies where you do have to have KYC enforced. You have to see, you know, um, anti-money laundering laws apply. You may have jurisdictional issues depending on what, uh, let's say, the geopolitical relationship of the day is. And then you'll probably have more uh, cryptographic uncensorable currencies that don't have those same requirements and it's hard yeah. to predict yeah jurisdiction of course would come into play if you have a decentralized contract or you know something or a smart contract that's got thousands of players around the world and it turns out to be a scam and a rug pull you know the reality of it is trying to actually you know get your money back or take some type of uh, uh, some type of uh, legal action against the editor the, you know the offerer is going to be next to impossible, right? Just like if you if you make a product and it gets ripped off by somebody in China and they clone your product and they sell it on eBay for half the price, yeah, you may be able to win. You may be able to win the legal battle, but you're never going to get your money back. But that's the way the system works anyway. But I, you know, I'll just give you a great example, and I and I'm I'm shocked that more people don't know about this. But I just came back from Wyoming. I had an interview with Tyler Lindholm, who's the congressman from Wyoming, who wrote almost all the. Uh, all the blockchain and crypto legislation here, and now he is an advisor to Senator Loomis. And just a month or two ago in Wyoming, uh, actually a couple months ago, they have legalized a DAO. In Wyoming, it is a legal entity in the state of Wyoming, and the DAO can either be managed algorithmically or it can be managed by people with like a board of directors. But a DAO can go into a Wyoming bank and open a bank account is a legal entity. Nowhere else in the world has that been done. Not Switzerland, not China, not Taiwan, nowhere else. But in Wyoming, you know, they have the first completely legal structure for a digital organization. I think it's absolutely amazing. And so I had a great interview. Actually, we're going to release that on BPSAA, hopefully in the next week or two. But so there are some people out there that are thinking big things, and then it was really cool to see that. So, and I, I'm I'm surprised it didn't make that bigger news. But uh, you know, so they're already taking things like DAOs and legalizing them, and I think that's I think that's good for the space. I really do. I was talking to Tim a few hours ago about this, right? So if I liken it to if it's a traditional registered company, a legally registered company that says I have we have this smart contract, and you interact through this smart contract we give you whatever if something goes wrong with a smart contract you have that company you know to go sue um, whether the court decides to, to to accept that smart contract as you know as another issue but then with DAOs, what i've been thinking is um to be or to organization to operate via a smart contract so that's what a DAO is and since we're talking about smart contracts that's what that does so rather than thinking about it, even though they, they allowed in Wyoming to be able to have a human DAO, 
I think the thing that's more exciting is the fact that they'll let you put a DAO out there that's algorithmically organized and it can be a legal entity. Nowhere else in the world have you ever had a legal entity that's completely digital with no human beings. I think that's absolutely fascinating. And it's a smart contract environment. I would just add, when you start to merge, um, let's say, pre-existing uh, regulatory oversight with certain areas of crypto, things get messy. Um, I'll use a simple example here, which is uh, copyright laws. There is no global copyright standard, as hash rates was talking about earlier. If um, I can say create something and a foreign corporation or actor rips me off, usually there's no means of enforcement. Well, if you look at something like NFTs, which are non-fungible tokens, which right now are primarily art-based, although they seem to have a lot uh, of use case beyond simple you know, um, art, how do you enforce copyright? There are a ton of artists right now that are putting um, their art either on blockchains or represented on blockchains by NFTs. And there's a lot of fog around copyright. Is it a limited copyright? Is it a full release? Can the person make products with it? Um, we have an entire complex set of laws that uh, you know, work when they do, and oftentimes there's, uh, let's just say, copyright uh, enforcement courts are generally full anyway in reality. Uh, there's a lot of complexity there that, you know, okay, so if we want to create some means to track, trace, enforce different aspects of copyright law, how do you do that? Uh, that's a big question. I wouldn't say that's something that uh, the space has an answer for yet, but if something like that could be created, there's a tremendous amount of value. And it would also displace um, a lot of third-party actors that just have their fingers in the pot to try to make the system that we already have work. Well, yeah, the but... technology is certainly ahead of the government, right? So, And it always has been and it will continue to do so. But... I, I think as we talk about smart contracts and people say, okay, well, we, you know, I talked about a very simple example about a baseball game bet, right? And then we talk about DeFi, and now we talk about a smart contract can be a DAO. It can actually be an organizational structure that self-executes and self-manages. And so, you know, again, having whether or not it's legal or you can take recourse against it or have you other things, nobody knows yet. I don't think anybody's ever thought about you know, what happens if we have a DAO and something goes wrong? Who do we sue, right? And now it could be a DAO that's based in Wyoming um, that's a legal entity that could go into a Wyoming court and the court will have to recognize that and deal with it. Um, I, 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 I don't think anybody has the answers for them yet. And I, I think a lot of this is just, this is what's so exciting about the space, doing things that nobody ever possibly could have dreamed of. And smart contracts are going to be a bigger, bigger part of everyday life where the way that we interact with technology or money or finance will be will be automated and there won't even be a human being or maybe an entity behind it, right? I mean, it's 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 cool. It's also a little bit scary, right? And and you have to take risks and I think the ability here is for people to recognize you have to you have to you have to do a little bit of homework, right? I think that's the short story on smart contracts is that you you got to be careful and you got to do homework. It's it's not a guarantee, right?
Very, very good point. So, so moving on to the next point. So, are smart contracts right now legally binding? Can you rely on them to say that you know you have a deal under the law as well as under the blockchain? I think that in order to fully set that up and feel secure about it, you would probably have to create a lot of the framework for your business and a lot of the verification off-chain in the existing legal system. And then perhaps once you have kind of your pre, let's say, contract based in reality, you could probably do business via smart contract that would be legally enforceable because you already have identity and um, you know, the contract laid out in the existing framework that um, is enforceable. Uh, in terms of like decentralized finance, uh, you know, as Hashrate said, maybe if you have a, a central actor, you could uh, take them to court. But, you know, one thing that's interesting to watch is as smart contracts uh, develop, um, you do have some that are coming out that are both non-custodial and non-interactive, where you don't have to, um, let's say, ask for any special permission to use it. It's open and available for every user. And how the logic of the smart contract works, you may actually never give custody of your coins or tokens or keys to a, another party until there's a certain swap. And I would say in, in, in a way that makes it even more complex because let's say that I create a non-custodial, non-interactive um, application and hash rates interacts with it, right? And for whatever reason, um, you know, there may or may not be an issue. It's very hard to enforce, not just from hash rates perspective as the user, but let's say I am a entity that doesn't like what that particular DAP does. Who do I go after if it's nobody asked permission and nobody actually took custody of anything? It was all done uh, via software. Uh, that kind of creates another um, interesting thing to watch as you know, um, DeFi becomes more adopted um, by users and you also have the kind of counter movement from governments to try to regulate it. Does anybody want to add to that? I, I would say that you know, smart contracts can be extremely simple, like a baseball bet between two buddies, um, or it can be something as sophisticated as a DAO. And and I, I think it's going to take years for the legal system to adjust. Um, and and I think what's really interesting is we think about these big, massive DeFi hacks, right, and people losing their money. I don't, even though you may be able to do it, I don't think there's a court in the world that can enforce any of this stuff uh, at this point in time. And, you know, it's it's kind of a double-edged sword. I like the fact that you're responsible and is a libertarian. Don't tell me how to spend my money and don't keep me from being stupid. If I'm stupid enough to lose my money, that's my problem. I'd rather I'd rather take the risk. You know, a lot of people, though, want protection from the government and they want to be protected and that they think there should be a guarantee. And if they do something stupid, you know, with their Visa card that they get their money back. Right. And that's certainly not the world of crypto. So um, I don't know. I, I, I like the fact that you're you, you have the ultimate risk, I think, with smart contracts and the legality of it is that they can be very sophisticated 
And I think that if you're going to put a lot of money in it, you better do a lot of homework. If you're only going to throw 10 bucks at a smart contract, who cares? But if you're really going to look at it and, and put a lot of money in it, you have to do your homework just like you would anything else. And if you don't, it's bad on you. And don't expect the government to bail you out for years, right? Again, that's just my opinion. But I think, you know, I, I often think also about, I think that the, right, the thing about crypto where, where the government doesn't tell you what to do. I, to digress a little bit, I feel like that's a Western world concept, I think. Um, not, not to say that there's none of it over on, I guess, the, the right half of the, <laughs> of the globe, whichever map you look at. Um, but the idea that, um, you know, the regular small guy doesn't have a legal recourse if something goes on because goes wrong because this is a global thing. I, I think it's something to be concerned about. You know, nobody telling you how you can spend your money is great. Then also, I, I don't know what the answer is, but then also there's no accountability. So, so... Does blockchain now have a unique opportunity to introduce accountability before regulation? Or are we going to wait for regulation to introduce, well, you know, bureaucracy and, and you know, anti-competitive sort of laws that do not help the space at all? I don't think anybody will wait. You know, it just is behooves whoever it wants to take the risk. Uh, you know, in the system nowadays to understand what they're doing. I wouldn't recommend, like, I, I'm very, very careful about who I recommend around me to be involved at all. Not to say that I'm super smart, but it does take a lot of keeping up with, with uh, you know, all the innovation, uh, keeping up between tele Telegram and Discord and all the chats to understand what's going on and, and do your due di diligence. I think due diligence is one other thing that I feel like is is moving very fast. There's a lot more due diligence to do now you know, in any one project that you want to be involved in than it was, I'd say, even you know, six months or a year ago. So there is, there is a lot of problems, okay, with the current setup of Ethereum, we can say, and you know, how things have evolved with smart contracts, you know, the, the problems with you know, the legality of them or not, you know, the regulatory oversight, you know, whether you can trust the actors that right now are reviewing the contracts and if, you know, without any oversight by any either blockchain body or government body or any other body, there are contracts that are going out there right now which could be, you know, very vulnerable, risking millions of people's money. So I want both Armenio and Hashrate to describe to me a little bit of, of how Ergo and Ether Protocol, respectively, have developed processes that will improve on, you know, smart contract functionality. Sure, I'll start with Ergo. Um, Ergo is built on what is called Sigma protocols. Uh, that's built into the core of Ergo script. Basically, what a Sigma protocol is is it's a zero knowledge proof that's pretty lightweight that allows you to program and or statements, meaning uh, you can create logic that will verify events have happened. Um, you know, if this and this has happened, if this and this or this has happened, you then get an outcome. It's a way of creating a sequence of events 
that can be verified. Now, the verification in extended UTXO, the majority of the logic actually runs off-chain and is then verified to have occurred on-chain, which is a part of how Ergo drives down the cost of um, smart contracts because you're not processing an entire program on-chain. Um, now, in the UTXO model, uh, a simple overview is the actual token and the quote-unquote smart contract, which actually is somewhat of a bad word. I would say it's just a series of events, right? Those series of events are actually programmed into the register of the UTXO itself. So um, in Ergo, if you hop on our website, you'll read that Ergo is programmable money, right? The actual sequence of event uh, is actually laid out inside of the UTXO box. So um, if I want to bet on the baseball game that Hashrates was talking about, I would chop that up into a series of sequences. You know, the game occurs, uh, you have these two actors, you know, there are going to be various factors that you have to consider in order to put together a logical progression of events, right? And being that that becomes programmed into the UTXO, it happens in little steps. And so each little step is like its own, um, let's say, small progression in the overall multi-stage contract. Um, one benefit of chopping it up into little pieces is it's a lot easier to um, kind of audit each individual sequence rather than to... Um, look at the entire programming function as a whole. Now in the account model, one area of attack is the actual token and the logic of the smart contract are two separate entities that need to be programmed to work together. Um, so in Ergo, because the token and the um, logic are in essence uh, programmed into the same box and you're running zero knowledge proofs to verify that each stage of the contract has occurred, um, it, it gives us a, you know, in some ways it's more complex than the standard account model, but uh, it also gives, I would say, a little bit higher trust in terms of how it has to be put together. That's not to say somebody can't make a catastrophic error. There's always, you know, <laughs> human element to consider, but the simple, um, and short of it is that Ergo as a network is secured by proof of work and the quote-unquote smart contracts or multi-stage verification events are secured by Sigma proofs as zero-knowledge um, programming is run. Thank you very much for that. That was very, very informative. Uh, how about if the protocol has rates? Well, we're not really trying to design a better smart contract uh, like those, uh, like Ergo is. Those guys have got some great technology. Um, you know, we are an Ethereum. Um, not a, we we took Ethereum uh, uh, code base and then um, altered it for with IPFS for hosting. So we're not we are basically Ethereum compliant. So if you have a smart contract that runs on Ethereum, it'll run on us just fine. So we're really not trying to design a better smart contract. Um, there's certainly room for improvement with Ethereum for sure. Um, and so, uh, you know, the only good thing we have going for us is the fact that, you know, our gas fees are one one thousandth 
of what you would pay on, uh, on for us. Our, our smart contracts, because of the price of our crypto and the way that we're engineered, you know, cost fractions of a cent versus hundreds of dollars on Ethereum. So I think with regards to Ethereum in general, um, who is the smart contract leader in the space, obviously, that there's a lot of competition, right? Um, you've got a lot of people out there trying to do better technology, make it quicker, faster, better. Um, I'm a little bit disappointed with Ethereum in the fact that what they started out to do, they priced themselves out of the market. Ethereum so expensive, you can't do anything on it. It's absurd. Um, and and it, so I'm, I'm happy to see Ergo and others in the BPSA working on better technology. For us right now, you know, again, we, we, you can execute smart contracts on, uh, on Etho protocol. It's part of what we do, but we're not basically in the smart contract business trying to build a better mousetrap. We're, we'll let other uh, people do that. Fantastic. That's, that's a great uh, overview of both of the projects. Okay, so today we learned how smart contracts can save us from Mars bars, right? Or rather, human influence that can tinker with rates such as LIBOR, which is a key metric in the global financial system. Um, so it can really hit at the heart of corruption in, in key places. Smart contracts can also introduce a level of trustless automation that enhances trust in the contract and makes it far stronger than a conventional one with a potential to also be used in court eventually as proof. Now, finally, we heard from Ergo and Ether Protocol about how they approach sort of smart contracts. And it was really, really an enlightening talk. I was wondering if anybody has some final thoughts. Well, I would go back to where we started. Um, ideally, in my opinion, a smart contract is going to be like a vending machine. It's a piece of software that rather than having a product just on the inside, you can have two people interacting with a vending machine and do business with each other in a trustless way that allows for the proper verification to occur that protects both parties. And ideally, if uh, you know, DeFi can grow to a place where you start to disrupt the need for third-party services in order to do business with each other, uh, that just creates more value for everybody. Yeah, and my comment would be this, is that I, I think, the, I believe at heart in the tokenization and, and decentralized finance, as we say DeFi, you know, it's such a broad term. Right now, people are thinking about you know, rewards and, 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 and ICOs and NFTs and all this fancy stuff. But I think what's really exciting is I got a business partner of mine that's involved in the real estate space and, and we're looking at tokenization of assets, particularly real estate. Think about a smart contract where you could have 100 people or 1,000 people own a single piece of property, right? And that rent payment automatically gets sent out every month for fractions of a cent and you could have a thousand people own that asset and they all get their monthly dividend check, right? Real world use of stuff, uh, you know, being able to be able to pool and collateralize, collateralize assets um, and these type of things. So smart contracts right now are so heavily into the DeFi and this crypto stuff. But I think the real the real answer for smart contract is going to be much more traditional finance, lowering the cost of business, lowering transparency. Just think if you had a if you had a single house that a thousand people owned and you had to send out a thousand checks for a dividend payment 
of $50 a month or $20 a month or $5 a month because so many people owned it and you had to put it in an envelope and you had to lick a stamp or you had to use ACH in the United States or God forbid you had to wire the money. You couldn't afford to do it. But using a smart contract and using and using cryptocurrency technology, you could have that rent dividend check go out to a thousand owners in a fraction of a second for pennies, right? That's where this stuff is really going. So, you know, I, I think that smart contracts right now are highly sophisticated, highly unregulated, highly volatile, highly risky. But generally speaking, I think that you're going to see more and more of that take place and the elimination of centralized financial authorities where we'll be able to have more peer-to-peer -peer banking and peer-to-peer -peer business. And smart contracts are going to be in the middle of all that. It's an exciting space. Amazing, guys. Amazing. Um, thank you so much for attending today. It was a fantastic discussion. Um, I, I think that we enlightened a lot of areas of smart contracts, especially when it comes to how they're set up, you know, their, their legality and their trustless nature. And at least, you know, it's a lot clearer in my head as to how these protocols work and you know how much of them we will see in in the near future and and also long term so i want to thank um our special guests today armenio from ergo thank you so much for coming yeah thanks for having me you know i, I would just end with everyone that wants to be in this space please try to know your assumptions and manage your risks I want to thank Hashrates for being uh, such a fantastic guest as always and, and giving us his thoughts. Always exciting to be here. And Tim, you do a great job on these podcasts. Thank you as well. And I also want to thank Wookie for dropping in at the very last minute's notice and, and giving us his time and his thoughts. So thanks, Wookie, for being here today. Thanks, Tim. Right, guys, thank you very much. Um, everybody who's listening, please watch out for uh, the next BPSA podcast, which has to do with internet freedom. So that's going to be a really interesting one. And we have a series of projects from the BPSA that haven't been on the podcast yet. And we're looking forward to um, talking to you very soon. Thank you very much. Bye.